Welcome to the Next Level Human Podcast. As a human, you have a job to do. In fact, you have four jobs. To earn and manage money, to attain and maintain health and fitness, to build and sustain personal relationships, to find meaning and make a difference. None of these jobs are taught in school. And that is what this podcast is designed to do. To educate us all on living our most fulfilled lives through the mastery of these four jobs. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Tita, and I believe we are here living this life for three reasons and three reasons only. To learn, to teach, and to love. In this podcast, I will be learning, teaching, and loving right along with you. I'm grateful to have your company. Here's to our next level. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. I have a treat for you today, Dr. Mary Kellis, another clinician on the show. And we were just talking briefly before we uh, jumped on. I love having real clinicians, people who have real world experience working with patients and clients on the show, because it there's in my mind, there's sort of three different types of experts, right? There's the role model expert, there's sort of the PhD researcher type, and then there's the results getter clinician, the person that sees people on the ground. And so I'm really excited you're here, Dr. Kellis. We're going to be talking uh, about one of the most important topics, I think, in medicine. We're going to be talking diabetes, blood sugar, things like metabolic syndrome, all this stuff about how our bodies deal with and handle sugar and the diseases that um, are, you know, um, spawn from that. And you are the perfect person to do this because you are an endocrinologist. So in case people don't know what that means, someone who studies the hormone, the hormones in the body. And in this case, specialty in, you know, dealing with hormones like insulin and cortisol and all these hormones that, in, you know, impact blood sugar regulation and more. So thank you so much for being here. We're blessed to have you on the show and your time. Why don't you get us started by, giving us a little bit of background on you, anything you want us to know about you and also how you got into this work and um, sort of what you think the state of the industry is and, and uh, just wherever you want to start would be wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be here today with you. A little bit about my background. I'm actually uh, a native of New York City, born and bred there. I thought I would end up there my whole life because that's what New Yorkers think. But (laughs) I met my husband on vacation in Greece and here I am in Cleveland, Ohio. And I uh, currently am a clinical endocrinologist at the Cleveland Clinic, seeing uh, multiple patients for various different endocrine disorders. I see a lot of diabetes and, um, you know, there are type one, type two, pre-diabetes, people with metabolic syndrome, and uh, it's one of my passions. It's, it's a disease that can have multiple complications and getting the word out there early and trying to prevent those complications is one of um, the things I'm most passionate about. I'm also a medical advisor at Sugar Break, uh, which is a company um, that has three products to help people who have blood sugar issues. And that also um, has been very positive in, in making a difference in, in people who have these conditions. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, so I don't know. Um, you know, I um, we have something in common. My family's from the Manhattan area, and I actually did before I went to medical school. I did. Um, I volunteered at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. Oh my God! Uh, I was, a, you know, a you have a little time. bit of an accent, <laughs> but maybe it's not. Maybe it's not a New York accent. But I could have sworn maybe I picked something yeah. up there. <laughs> well, you, you know, you know what it is. It's funny. It's because I grew up in the South with northern parents so from the manhattan area and so people go it's a little bit south it's a little bit north and it's a little bit hip i don't know you know what that is but it's a unique it's a unique accent but anyway i loved my um my time uh there and so we definitely share that and i will be in the city in actually about two weeks so i'll be heading up there i know it's different right now with the whole covid thing going on oh yeah my well my whole family is still out there and um it's it's Definitely different, but the vibe is back. The buzz is back. So it's not that, dead anymore. <laughs> yeah, that, that's <laughs> what I great. heard. And it's been several years since I've been there. But, you know, so let's get into this because I I know that it's sort of a misunderstood thing when people 
people really sort of get into this. The, one of the things I love about you, so I'm a naturopathic physician, right? So I came from the natural medicine world and I get some conventional training. You're a conventional doctor who also has gone into the natural world. And I love this, right? Because we come at this from two different sides, but we kind of oftentimes end up in the middle clinicians like you and me. And so it's really interesting because um, I can tell you're really taking this sort of approach that has both the best of conventional and alternative uh, sort of um, natural sort of therapies. And I do think this is the clinician of the future. So you and I, in a sense, are sort of early adopters in this. Help us understand how this works, because we're going to have two types of people, right, who are listening to you and I right now. We're going to have the natural medicine only type of people, right, who are just <laughs> like, I don't want to do anything, but, you know, um, natural supplements and things like that and diet and exercise. And then we're going to have the people who are sort of more uh, sort of conventionally minded and kind of go, what's wrong with drugs? You know, I myself, I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I am on thyroid medications. There's a time and a place for these things. So why don't you help us sort of understand how we should be thinking about blood sugar management and the sort of chasm between when it's time to sort of go into the conventional world and how powerful is the natural medicine world in terms of diet and exercise? What have you seen in the clinic in terms of uh, you know, these treatment options. And I think it's just be a nice discussion for us to give everyone sort of an understanding of how a clinician is looking at this stuff from sort of early diagnosis to potential blood sugar issues, pre-diabetes, diabetes, and then treatment options. So great questions. I mean, I think initially when someone is pre-diabetic, when someone's pre-diabetic, there's so much they can try to do to kind of make things better before they transition over to having diabetes, like for example, you know, these lifestyle changes that we talk about, um, exercising and the types of exercising and, uh, you know, resistance and, and strength training and all of these things. Um, and also reducing carbohydrates and making those lifestyle changes. But when you do all that you can and genetics is up against you, um, and or you have other issues like obesity um, that can contribute to this insulin resistance, then sometimes you have to take the next step. So, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about the way how diabetes has been changing over time in the management of diabetes, if you look back, I mean, back in the 80s, we didn't have many oral options for diabetes in terms of pharma. Um, you know, we had the sulfonylureas, which are the drugs like Gliburide, for example, that can help reduce blood sugar by take telling the pancreas to release insulin. And then in the 90s, we, we got metformin, uh, which is a drug that um, many people start out with uh, first line when they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Um, that makes you more insulin sensitive and it inhibits something called gluconeogenesis. So um, the body's ability to be making more glucose. And, you know, for many years, we our options were limited. And then 2000 comes around and we start getting all these wonderful different types of drugs that can affect uh, basically uh, different parts of the physiology of diabetes, which together work to really improve blood sugar in various ways. So, you know, for example, um, the DPP-4 inhibitors, a class of drugs that basically um, will help to um, increase a hormone that's very important called GLP-1, which is an incretin. And we know in type 2 diabetes that that hormone is reduced. So this medication actually inhibits its breakdown. So more of that is around. So this hormone is quite important because it makes you more insulin sensitive. And, you know, as a result, from, from there, we've also had different drugs like the GLP-1 hormone itself um, that's been out um, also in, you know, weekly form and, and da even daily form and now oral form. And this not only helps bringing down the blood sugar, but is, is actually also helping with weight loss. Mm. So, you know, the SGLT2 inhibitors is a completely other, um, group of drugs that help to target the kidney. So at the level of the kidney, it helps inhibit, uh, makes glucose be released in the urine. So as a result, you improve the blood sugar 
and you can have weight loss and it can also help your blood pressure as well as your blood sugar. And actually a lot of the data with those class of drugs have actually been found to reduce the cardiovascular mortality um, and morbidity in people with diabetes. So these newer generation drugs don't just target blood sugar, but they also target um, cardiac uh, and help to improve associated complications with diabetes. Mm. So the, the SGLT2 inhibitors, that, like we discussed, they also can help with kidney function and decreasing protein loss in the urine. So it's nice to know that we have all these different combinations that are available um, to, to help improve blood sugar. Mm. For years and years though, we've had supplements uh, and actually leaves and extracts and you know all these other things that came before these oral medications that people use to try and bring blood sugar down. Like for example, the white mulberry leaf extract, um, you know, cinnamon, for example, banaba leaf extract, gymnema. So these, all these other things that we've had in nature that we've learned have helped to, to um, bring blood sugar down, but because they've been from years and years before we had the science and the research and the randomized clinical trials, we never really got to that point where we had all this data to suggest its benefit. Mm. So the really cool thing about living in our era is that we have this like beautiful symbiosis where people are now saying, I want more natural, but they know they need pharma. And there may be this ability to use both, for example, and now there's a lot more data and clinical studies being done on some of these, you know, natural or supplemental products that have helped to show this improvement in blood sugar. I love the way you, I love the way you tie this all together. And it's kind of fascinating stuff, right? For those of you uh, sort of following this discussion, um, if, you, if you take GLP-1, for example, there are many different things that release this naturally. What essentially these new drugs are doing is essentially taking advantage of this in a bigger way. Sometimes some of the natural agents, and of course, uh, Dr. Kellis and I both are fans of natural medicine, but when you get into the clinic, you oftentimes see that why they can be powerful in some people and other people, they're not as powerful. And you do need to bring in some of these pharmaceuticals. It's it's interesting, um, the the just a little bit of the history on this, and maybe you know a little bit about this as well, but one of the things that I was fascinated by is when the early on when they were looking at, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, essentially the, the, the stomach reduction where they're essentially bypassing certain aspects of the small intestines and amplifying GLP-1 because it's kind of farther down in the digestive tract and kind of seeing some of these people who underwent these surgeries, uh, reversing diabetes very, very quickly. And this, this spawned to my understanding, this whole sort of understanding about what happens with the GIP GLP one sort of ratio. And so essentially for those of you listening, and I know we have a lot of people, uh, and I told Dr. Kellis this when she jumped on, a lot of you are very savvy and sort of understand this conversation. But one of the things I think is exciting about you is that oftentimes those people who are excited about natural medicine, don't always um, want to talk about the pharmaceuticals um, because they see them as um, dangerous or they see them as bad. And I'm just making the case here to show that these are natural things that the, the these pharmaceuticals are working against. And of course, there are um, downsides to all of this, but I love the idea of walking people through when is the natural medicine appropriate and when are these other things appropriate based on, you know, things that the metabolism is actually doing? If we can amplify GLP-1 signaling in some way, this has benefits. By the way, you can do this with things like coffee. You can do this by changing the protein uh, carbohydrate ratio. There are other things to do it. They just don't do it perhaps as powerful. So why don't we um, go through a little bit more of this? Let's say, let's just walk them through the way you and I, and especially you might be looking at this clinically. So let's say, you, you know, someone comes into you and they are starting to have blood sugar related issues. How would you tell that? So let's say, you know, what would you start seeing on the fasting um, blood sugar? What might you be seeing clinically in terms of signs and symptoms that you might be saying, we need to kind of look a little bit further what's going on with their blood sugar uh, handling. And then let's 
sort of talk about some of the treatments, including diet and natural stuff you might do before getting to the pharmaceuticals? So, I mean, a lot of times on a fasting glucose, if you're, you know, hitting over a hundred, then you do have some impaired fasting uh, blood sugar. If you have more than 126, by definition, if that's repeated times two, it's considered diabetes. And then the A1C, which is a, a, you know, the average blood sugar over three month period of time, anything above 6.5 is considered diabetes. And if you're between 5.7 and 6.4, you're considered pre-diabetic. So when you start seeing this, uh, what's called impaired fasting glucose, so not quite diabetes, but in between, um, you know, there, there are things that you can try to, to help reduce that. And again, a lot of times you have to, you know, you always look at the patient and every patient is different. Every patient has different circumstances. Um, some patients are obese. And again, that you know, increases the insulin resistance, which can make it harder for you to achieve, you know, normal blood glucose. Weight loss is very important in that patient. And weight loss can help with that. Uh, building muscles can help that because it makes you more insulin sensitive. So every patient takes, you know, we take a different approach based on, you know, who they are, what their risk factors are. Um, but you always emphasize, you know, again, the things, the lifestyle changes that you need to make, the healthy choices. And, you know, the one interesting thing that I like to tell people who have diabetes is that I, I tell non-diabetics the same as I would tell someone who has diabetes um, how to eat healthy. I mean, it's not that you have diabetes and now you have to eat something completely different. We all need to watch our carbohydrates. We might not have diabetes, we might not have prediabetes, but we all have to be healthy and reducing those refined sugars. So, you know, it's the approach also of how you talk to the patient um, and, you know, build that trust to have that relationship to, to, to help them make that change so we can see improvements in the lifestyle, for example. And yeah. if we don't get it by lifestyle, you know, diet and exercise, then sometimes we do need to add, um, you know, additional medication. So, for example, you know, as I said earlier, metformin would be the first choice um, from pharma. Sometimes people don't want to do metformin. So then, you know, sometimes they'll do, um, you know, cinnamon or cinnamon supplements or, you know, stabilize where, you know, we have these multiple supplements within there, um, different leaf extracts that chromium that have been shown to reduce blood sugar. So it really depends on the patient and their approach and, and how they want to best um, approach it as, you know, I like to approach it as a team because obviously that's the best way to make change. You can't like enforce a certain thing. You need to have that patient with you in conversation, have that trust relationship and see how, you know, what, what their goals are. And if they do want a more natural way, we we would try that before we, you know, go on to, to, to more pharmaceuticals. But again, once you hit a certain point, you know, you most often, if, if the natural way, the lifestyle is not working, you, you probably move into, you know, needing to use some of these drugs, these great drugs that are out there um, to help reduce blood sugar and improve weight and potentially have um, improvement in cardiovascular risk as well. Yeah. I want to, I definitely want to talk about those those drugs a little bit more. One of the things I'm curious, and I just want to repeat a couple of things you said here, just because I know people, and these are very important things for us to know, especially those who, of you who are looking after your own health. And I'll just repeat this, Dr. Kellis, and just catch me if I make any mistakes here, just so we can give the listener sort of some sort of clear guidelines. So what I'm hearing you say is that for those of you who are looking at this, once your blood sugars are generally tracking up, fasting above 100, this is where Dr. Kellis is essentially saying, this is where you're starting to approach prediabetes. Now there's a big gap between 100 and 126, but when we diagnose, it's essentially 126 on two separate fasting occasions. This is the definition of diabetes. And this is when you would be uh, diagnosed with type two diabetes from our perspective. Now also we have another measure called hemoglobin A1C that basically tells you the average of blood sugar readings over about a three month period. And so Dr. Kellis here is telling us, once this gets about 6.5, this is diagnostic. 
you know, typically we look at, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Dr. Kellis, but I like to see a below 5.5 optimally. And so, and so you're in that gray zone between 5.5 and mm-hmm. 6.5. So if you're one of these people who's looking at, you're in the hundreds, not quite 126 on fasting blood sugars, and your hemoglobin A1C is above 5.5, not quite up to 6.5, we're starting to look at you as being pre-diabetic. And then at that point, um, Dr. Kellis is talking about, we're going to start to make some diet and lifestyle recommendations uh, right there. And so let's go through some of these, because I know people are going to say, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about these things. So diet wise, you know, what, what, where would you start? I mean, we have the paleo diet, we have the keto diet, we just have reduction of carbohydrates there. We have people who talk about intermittent fasting. And I'll just say briefly, I've seen all of these approaches do well for people based on what they can maintain. I've also seen these not do so well for some people because they cannot maintain it or because of other mechanisms. For example, stress hormones can also make insulin uh, resistant. They also can cause cravings and make it more difficult for you to stay on a diet. So I'm curious from your perspective, with your clinical sort of, um, you know, experience, where do you start with this? Is it simply, hey, I want you not to go above a certain amount of total carbohydrates? Are you someone who likes the keto diet, paleo diet? What is your natural sort of first step here from the diet perspective? So my natural first step is not to call it diet, because as soon as you call it diet, (laughs) everything goes out the window. So it's a lifestyle change. And it's, you know, the way I see it is weight, weight gain is a fascinating topic and it's probably should be a topic on another podcast, mm. but the, the multiple different factors that go into weight beyond what goes in and exercise, you know, microbiome stressors, all these different um, things, hormones that play a role into why people gain weight. Um, it's, it, it's an interesting you know, fascinating, fascinating topic that we definitely should, should do at a later date. But basically, you know, in terms of what I tell them, it really depends on the person because there are some people who they get into a keto diet, they do amazing, they'll lose 50 pounds, 60 pounds, and they're sticking to it. But as soon as those carbs start coming back, it's all regained. Mm. So this is why I don't like to say, this diet works, that diet works. But you know, I I sort of see um, what you take in and food and telling people about how to eat similar to exercise. Like when a patient tells me I'm working out like an hour a day for five days a week, and I'm not losing weight. And I'm like, change the exercise, your body is used to it, you need to do something different to jumpstart your metabolism and, and get it going again. So I think if you do something chronically um, after a while, and and as we know about you know weight loss, you know ultimately you drop, 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 and then you plateau, and patients get upset when they plateau, and then they start finding things to put back in their mouth, and the weight goes back on. So I mean, I I do think you know that having um when you do have prediabetes or diabetes, you do have to be more conscientious about the carbs and reducing mm-hmm. carbs. Um, that also can help with, you know, weight loss and the type of carbs, like, you know, obviously avoiding refined sugars, the white breads, the white pastas, that kind of stuff. Um, you want to eat a lot less of, um, if eliminate completely. So, um, those are the things that you should probably, you know, be avoiding. But, um, I, I actually do really like the intermittent fasting. Um, I think, you know, for some people, and there is some data to support it. And then there's some data to refute it, you know, you'll always find science to back and, and, and science to, you know, refute. But um, what I like about it is that a lot of people stress eat. And so if you tell yourself, um, you know, I can't eat between this time and that time, those night eaters, you know, it could be potentially useful for them, because if they know they need to stop at 6.30 p.m., 
and they're kind of restricting themselves to that time period, then those additional 2000 calories that come in after dinner won't come in. So, you know, again, it's very variable. And I I don't think I have like a prescription for for the general public, I think every patient is different. And, And that's why clinical medicine is so cool, right? Because, you know, you get to see all these people and, um, you know, work with them and, and treat them individually, which is how they should be treated. Yeah, it's funny. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story, Dr. Kellis. You'll, you'll appreciate this. But one of my, when I was very early on in clinical practice, I had this, this long haul trucker come in, his, his wife sent him in. I, I just remember him by Dale, not his real name. Cause we don't use real names, but this yeah, is, yeah, I, yeah. I wrote about him in one of my books and it was funny because he was just like, I don't know why I'm here, but he was, uh, you know, basically uh, early diagnosed. He was on metformin. Um, he was 30 to 40 pounds overweight. Uh, I was taking his lifestyle. And this guy ate at Greasy Spoons, fast food places. He basically ate where his truck went. And he was a good old boy in a sense from the South. So, you know, he wasn't going to switch to eating, you know, wild caught salmon and organic kale. And at that time, essentially what I did is just say, listen, can we get you off the sodas and instead do Diet Coke. Now, at that time, Diet Coke was considered in my mind poison. I just was like, it's not as poison as, you know, the actual sugar you're putting in your body. Can we strip the buns off of your burgers? Can we get you to, you know, eat nuts instead of chips when you're at the ExxonMobil station getting a snack? And, you know, he looked at me kind of strange and and said, I can do that. And that's really all I wanted to hear. Um, is that he could get these things out, eat at all the same places, but eat differently. And, you know, I never thought I'd see him again. He turned about three, four months later. I did not recognize him. He was no longer diabetic. I was doing a consulting clinic at the time, so I wasn't managing his meds. His doctor took him off the meds. Wow. And this was something that was a was one of these cases that I would never forget, because at that time in my clinical practice, I never would have dreamed of telling someone to eat diet soda or any of these kinds mm-hmm. of things. But what it was, it, it spoke to what you just said is that you have to meet your clients, patients where they are. And if you're listening to this and you're not in the health coaching field or, or a clinician or something like that, then you also have to figure out and find what works for you. And isn't it amazing that we have someone like Dr. Kellis, who's you know probably seen thousands of patients, myself as well. And her, her sort of recommendation is, find and do what works for you, right? And that's essentially, um, I think, what clinical medicine does. You see all these different people and you find out very quickly that one approach that works fantastic for one person just explodes and works not at all in another person. And you have to really work um, to uh, figure this out. But it's just, you know, I kind of guessed that was going to be your answer, but it always blows my mind whenever you're talking to a clinician this is almost always the case because they work with so many people. I'm sorry to break into the show, but I wanted to take a second to cover one of our sponsors and tell you all about Paleo Valley at paleovalley.com. These are the grass-fed sticks that I tell you all so much about that all of my friends know I have on hand constantly. They are in my car. They are at my house. I keep them at my sister's home and my parents' house. I have these things everywhere because they are the simplest, most convenient whole foods protein supplement you can get, almost like carrying around pure protein, low-carb protein in your pocket. They also, these Paleo Valley beef sticks, are the only The only 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef sticks on the market. They use organic spices. They are naturally fermented. Instead of using nitrates and nitrites that can be a problem in some of these cured meats. And they simply taste fantastic. Check out the original or the jalapeno. Those are my favorites. Please make sure you go over to paleovalley.com and visit when checking out, use the code Next Level for a 15% discount. Remember, our sponsors keep the show going by you giving them your patronage and spending your money on these high quality products. You actually do a few things. One, you're helping to support the podcast. And two, you are helping your health. And three, you are making sure that good quality companies like Paleo Valley can be out there doing their business 
changing the world, making the earth better. One of the things you may not know about this is that grass-fed organic and grass-finished beef is doing something that is so utterly important for our environment, actually helping to repopulate the topsoil. A lot of people don't know this, but our topsoil is being extremely depleted and raising animals, especially cattle, the correct way helps to get that topsoil back. This is one of the reasons why I love Paleo Valley, not to mention it tastes fantastic, but they're one of these companies like my other sponsors, Cured Nutrition and Organifi that are doing the right things by the environment. I really appreciate everything they do and I hope you will check them out. Thanks so much. Paleovalley.com. Use the code next level. And now back to the show. It is time to talk about one of our sponsors, our earliest sponsor, Cured Nutrition. This is a CBD company. Cured Nutrition is another one of those next level human companies that is doing amazing things in the world. Let me tell you a little bit about one of the things I've been doing with CBD here recently. There is some really interesting research showing that chronic cannabis users, these are people who are smoking marijuana, are actually down-regulating the cannabinoid 1 receptor. Well, guess what the cannabinoid 1 receptor is involved in? Well, it's involved in cravings and hunger. And there is some really interesting mouse research that shows mice given products that lower CB1 or being engineered with a lower CB1 activity actually eat less and are not obese as a result of that. And so I have been experimenting using CBD to lower hunger, to downregulate the CB1 receptor, just the way chronic cannabis users tend to be very thin. And it has been working very well. Now, of course, the other thing that I use this for and have used it for, for since day one is uh, Cure Nutrition has a product called Zen that is a mix of magnesium and CBD and some other really nice formulations in there that I use to help me sleep. I have notoriously bad sleep. My sleep still is not perfect, but the Cured Nutrition product Zen has made a big difference to helping me sleep better. And that is just huge. Now, of course, they have other products. They also have a product called Rise, which I do not use, but I have used in the past it is great for those people who like to have a pick-me-up in the morning to focus better. So Zen and Rise are fantastic, but any of their CBD products used for downregulation of the CB1 receptor to help with hunger and cravings, if you're one of these people who is constantly overeating and on a diet, you find that, hey, when I'm on a diet, I get this crazy sort of hunger and cravings. This may be something you want to check out. So check out CuredNutrition.com. Use the code next level. I get a kickback to help us have these discussions on the show. It's a great way for me to be able to do this work. So thank you for Cured Nutrition for that. Of course, Cured Nutrition gets the sale and you get to work with a fantastic company that gets results with their supplements. I hope you will check them out. CuredNutrition.com. Use the code next level. And now let's go ahead and get back to the show. Let's do it. Yeah. And I, honestly, I think, you know, for, for those who you know, for example, are listening to this and have diabetes, it's really important to find a provider, a doctor who takes care of you, that you understand, that listens to you and trusts you and can work with you. Mm. If you if you don't like their philosophy or if you feel like they're just telling you what to do, that might not be the right doctor for you. I mean, you need to voice your concerns Tell them how you see it and how you how you would like it. And of course, you know, as a doctor, we are guiding um, the best we can to improve your health as best as we can. Mm. Um, but it's always important to know um, from from their end where they're coming from too. Because honestly, if if sometimes you know a patient will say, yeah, 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 I'll take it, and then they go home and they don't take it. You know, and it's because they're afraid, they don't know what the side effects are, this and that. So, you know, building that trust and really having um, the faith and um, in in the in your physician um, is really, really important. I mean, that is definitely the first step in helping to get you to where you need to be in terms of your diabetes goals. Yeah, 100%, 100% agree on that. So diet, I think, you know, we, we kind of discussed both of us, you know, sort of would agree. It's really finding what works for you. I think 
getting the carbohydrates out. One, one thing I'll ask you about um, is one of the things I have seen, and I want to see if, if you've seen this as well, is especially when I'm working with, you know, uh, people who are, you know, been diabetic for a while and morbidly obese. Um, one of the things that I think uh, that I have seen in my clinical practice is sometimes, obviously, the first move is always pulling out carbohydrates. Sometimes you see protein having a negative effect on blood sugars as well. And sometimes you have to tick mm-hmm. up the fat content of the diet to control this if you're working on diet. Do you see that as well? And, is, and you know, uh, do you see it? I, I see it usually only in, um, you know, people who are, you know, basically uncontrolled diabetics, you know, that you really have to, sometimes that protein can, can drive gluconeogenesis. And so I do sometimes move more towards, you know, a higher uh, fat, lower carb, moderate protein diet, which looks a lot like the keto diet. I just rarely jump to that right off the bat. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing is sometimes people, I just had a patient the other day who was like, oh, I eat very low carb. And um, she was telling me, you know, I don't understand, like my meal had no carbs in it, but my blood sugar went skyrocketing. And Mm. it's true. I mean, you know, it, you obviously do count the carbohydrates, but sometimes the protein in the meal and the way that things are absorbed, you can sometimes see those, those excursions in the blood sugars. Mm. So yeah. 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 What what is your, what is your thought about, uh, you know, now we have like, I'm, I'm wearing a levels device right now. Right. And so a lot of us have these CGMs that we're uh, sort of wearing and they're relatively new to clinical practice. I've had, um, you know, um, not nearly enough experience just because they haven't been out uh, long enough, but I've been seeing some very interesting things with this. For example, I've seen some some uh, the clients that I've been working with, you know, tapioca starch, for example, I think for some people that's in a lot of these low calorie, low, you know, low sugar items that aren't supposed to spike mm-hmm. blood sugars. And I've seen that some of this you're seeing, it does not impact their blood sugar that much. And then others, you're seeing it really drive blood sugars up. And this is a really unique tool now because now we can not just say, Hey, you should be reducing your carbohydrates, but now we can also be seeing that, um, you know, like they showed in the predict study that essentially certain individuals eating the exact same foods, having vastly different, um, you know, glucose excursions, which is great for clinicians like us. And I'm just wondering how you're using that. And if you have enough experience yet to draw any kind of conclusions around that. Certainly do. I I think the continuous glucose monitors are amazing. Uh, They Mm. are like, I got the chills just saying it for real. I mean, it's made a huge difference for so many people. I had a type one diabetic. She's had diabetes, sorry, patient with diabetes for, (laughs) I want to be politically correct correct here. Um, She's had diabetes for 50 plus years and her A1C was always in the nines because she was so petrified of hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. Every time I corrected how much she would need to take before meals, she never gave it to herself. She was Mm. too afraid to go low. Mm. And, you know, honestly, it is one of the rewards of this job. I think, you know, having her started on this, she feels more comfortable. She has the alarms that'll let her know when she's dropping. Mm. So she's taking more of that insulin before the meal. And her A1C is now normal. Um, she's not getting hypoglycemia. You look at the CGM tracing and it's like a straight line across. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking 30 year olds. I'm talking 80 year olds. Mm -hmm. I have 75 year olds, 80 year olds, um, you know, obviously the middle age group. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's amazing that even the older population is able to get on board with this and learn from it and, you know, because it's techie. I mean, my mom doesn't do much tech, but, you know, uh, people were using my turn. You know, yeah, it's yeah. it's becoming one of the things we got to do, especially after the COVID pandemic. But mm. the CGM is amazing. I actually don't have diabetes, but I've worn a CGM too. Mm. And honestly, there is definitely this thing where you are less likely to reach for that super sweet item because you are petrified to see what will happen. (laughs) Okay. So I have tried it when I had the CGM on and, you know, to see the, the spike in the blood sugar Mm -hmm. um, and how quickly it goes up. It's pretty, you know, it freaks me out a little bit, you know, and, and, you know, it's, and it's not, you know, it's something that should, should be used. I feel, you know, the wellness industry is, is really making a big, push in this world. And, you know, a lot of us are health and fitness and moving toward that direction. But I think 
um, you know, this is not just for people with diabetes. I think mm. it's, it's definitely something for people who just want insight um, to understand how their body works. Mm. And again, this idea, going back to this idea of you are an individual, we are all different. We all have different stressors. We have different metabolic issues, different genetic factors. So we are all different. And, you know, the CGM can, can provide a lot of that insight, insight and help kind of guide you too in terms of food choices and what works for you and what doesn't. So yeah, I, I'm very pro CGM and I have a ton of patients on it. And, mm. and, you know, just, just for those of you listening out there, Medicare is now being a little bit more lenient in terms of approving it because it was a little bit more difficult and post COVID, um, you know, now we're able to get it in a lot of the Medicare population a little bit, you know, obviously, we still have a lot of paperwork we have to fill out. But <laughs> there are a lot more people who are able to get it where it's covered. And I think that's great. And I think that they should continue to approve it and make it cheaper so that people have access to these things. So they can can make changes. I mean, the A1C reductions we've seen um, just by switching to a CGM have been phenomenal. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, it's not just about being on an insulin pump. It's the continuous glucose monitor, regardless, if you're not on insulin, if you're just on oral meds can make a huge difference because you'll change the way you eat when you look at what happens, your patterns, you know, your spikes, et cetera. Yeah. There's something magical about that biofeedback, you know, just to be able to have the number and see it in, in real time. So let, let's talk a little bit about, we talked about sort of the diet and, and I think you and I are definitely on the same page there. Not that we have to be, but, you know, finding and doing yeah. what works for you. Um, exercise wise, uh, and I'll just kind of start us out here. I have a few questions for you. Um, one of the things that I have seen is that early on, I'm, you know, so I, I'm a, I'm a big burly dude. I like working out with weights and, you know, yeah. um, high intensity stuff. And early on, once again, being a little young and dumb, I took people right from couch potatoes, right into some of this hardcore high intensity interval training, weight training and stuff like that. In my clinical experience, it backfired more times than not. And I found myself moving back to just getting people walking, looking at basically, you know, how many steps are they taking a day? How often are they sitting and getting them walking more? And of course, this uh, independently sensitized the body to insulin because glucose raises the, or the muscle has the ability to increase GLUT4 receptors the same way, um, the glucose receptors rather, the same way that insulin might, and it lowers cortisol. So I love this sort of one-two punch. And of course, resistance training has its, its sort of merits and cardiovascular training has its merits. This has been my approach, walking first, moving into weight training and cardiovascular stuff, if people love it, but it tends to throw their hunger and cravings off in a pretty sizable amount of my clinical uh, experience. Where do you start? Do you see it um, to me, do you do things differently? What what kind of things can you teach us about your clinical experience, what you've noticed from someone who might be pre-diabetic to someone who's actually diabetic and the way they handle exercise? Um, what's your sort of insights that you can give us there? So, yeah, I agree in, in terms of like, you're not going to get them off the couch and running a, ma a marathon or doing something super intense. But, um, you know, I get them walking first and then I add weights to the walk. So I'll tell them, hey, you know, you're doing the walk, it's a slow walk, you know, then you make it a brisk walk. And then why don't you just grab on to a couple of hand weights while you're walking? Um, and then slowly, as you know, as they get more fit, or if they want to do more, then we start talking more about, you know, strength training and cardio. But you know, the th that's the other thing, you know, I think the pandemic has really changed in the sense, um, I feel that a lot more people have that ability because to 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 do different um, exercise programs that are offered that help with all these different things. Like one particular program has access to you know all those different things, right? So yoga is terrific. Um, um, then you know uh, cycling uh, for a short period of time, and then doing weights. So there are so many different programs out there that can help people and guide them to to getting to getting fit at their level. And I I often kind of defer to some of those programs um, in terms of exercise. And we also have an exercise program here 
um, you know, where we work, um, where, where the patient can meet with our exercise physiologists who can also help them. One interesting, just a couple interesting tidbits on, on some of the research around exercise. Um, walking, uh, you know, to me would be my number one. One of the interesting things about uh, resistance training, though, um, I'm sure you know this, Dr. Kells, but it's for the sort of listeners, is that when you, when you lift weights, um, you are actually doing several different things. The muscles are an endocrine organ as well, so they secrete myokines, and these myokines actually seem to be primarily dealing with the liver and addressing some of the you know, one of the things that happens in diabetes is the liver doesn't get the message to stop gluconeogenesis. Some of these myokines can help that signal um, sort of work better. And so one of the things that we, when we think about walking, we're thinking about the muscle being sort of this glucose sponge, but we're not always aware that when you lift Lifting weights actually seems to release certain myokines that speak to the liver and work directly on the liver as well, which is really interesting that you chose weight training as well, walking and weight training. And then I love kind of what you said there. It's like, listen, there's lots and lots of different ways uh, to do this and lots and lots of different activities. And it'd be interesting to see, and we're not there yet, I think, in the science. Clinically, it'd be interesting to see. Um, you know, which one of these things are having the best effect? My guess would be the thing that you can be consistent with and love and actually do. But I do think there are some interesting mechanisms that uh, are uh, different for uh, different types of activity that will that will become more clear um, sort of in the years uh, in the years to come. So I don't know if you have anything more to add on that, but I, I, I think um, it's just a really interesting discussion in terms of, oh, are there certain types of exercise we can do that can address, um, you know, certain aspects of blood sugar handling? Well, that's the thing too. I think, you know, you can't confuse what your goal is when you do the exercise, right? Well, obviously stress relief is one of them, but mm. what is your goal? Like if, if your, if your goal is weight loss, you have a different approach, but if your goal is, you know, blood sugar reduction, um, you know, you might, emphasize more on also doing, making sure you're building muscle and, and strength training, because it's, it's when you're not exercising that that muscle you just built is helping you and making you more insulin sensitive. So obviously weight loss helps you be, be more insulin sensitive. Um, but you know, there's, it's still a little bit of both. And what's the, what is the mechanism there to your understanding? My, my understanding is as, as those fat cells grow, one of the other things that fat cells, just like muscle cells, they're all endocrine organs. So the fat is secreting uh, adipokines and different things that are impacting uh, insulin sensitivity and ramping up inflammation and things like that. What, is that the mechanism uh, there or is there something else going on? Well, that and also that, you know, the more muscle you have, the more blood sugars needed to get into those cells. So mm -hmm. they're taken up by that, you know, by the muscle itself. Mm -hmm. And you're more likely to get it into the into their quick, more quicker. Like that's yeah. why it's called insulin sensitivity, more insulin sensitive. Yeah. And I love that. Right. Because here, here you all are listening to a clinician. And essentially, if you read between the lines, it's essentially even if you don't lose weight, just the fact that you are moving that muscle, it's acting as a glucose sink, absorbing all that almost like a glucose exactly. sponge yep. in a sense. And then and then what Dr. Kells is saying, too, is if you can grow some muscle, which isn't necessarily imperative, but if you can, that has some extra benefit. Then when you go move that extra muscle or even when you're you're sitting still. So let's get into a little bit now about sort of the natural, the natural supplements and, and uh, what your, what your favorites are. I, I have one that's my favorite that you didn't, you haven't mentioned yet. And I want, want to see if, if uh, perhaps um, you, you, you don't like this for some reason I'm aware of. And this is why I love talking to clinicians because you get to, you know, together with different clinicians say, oh, I didn't know that. And, but my favorite is berberine. I think it functions a whole lot like um, metformin. And so I oftentimes will start for people who don't like metformin. I'll oftentimes go uh, berberine. And then, of course, you know, um, all the, all the, the, you know, vitamin type of things, magnesium and mm -hmm. B vitamins and, and that kind of stuff. And then I kind of um, ramp up from there, but that's sort of always been my sort of first line. I've had good success with that berberine and, you know, sort of the vitamins and minerals, chromium, all that kind of stuff. Um, what, what are your, what are your favorites and your go-tos and what have you seen be clinically most uh, effective? So, uh, yeah, I actually haven't, I, I, I had maybe one patient on berberine, um, 
the ones that some many of my patients have used um the like cinnamon has mm -hmm. been a big i know probably several years ago cinnamon must have been like hot on the press because mm -hmm. there was a slew of people constantly coming in on cinnamon tablets yeah, yeah. and not so <laughs> and much I, anymore yeah not so much anymore um but i always used to say hey you don't necessarily need to take that whole tablet you could just add cinnamon you know i mean obviously yeah. it's the amount too but like you know just put it on you know your breakfast yeah. or whatever um, but you know, chromium's a big one. And you know, this this sugar break product, it's has a bunch of different um different leaves in there. There are three different products they have. Um, the one product actually stabilized is used for postprandial blood sugar. Um, so that has the the white mulberry leaf extract, the banaba leaf, and the chromium in it together. So mm. it sort of uh works symbiotically to to reduce uh post postprandial blood sugar. So and, as and fenugreek talk, too, yeah. Is that the uh, fenugreek is in the reduced line. So yeah. and reduce is sort of the one you take, you know, once a day to mm. help keep the blood sugars even um, during the day. Yeah, so yeah. it's fenugreek and banana leaf and um, also has uh, the gymnema in it. So these all block, you know, they block carbs and the banana leaf actually also has um, uh, polyphenols in it, which are mm -hmm. antioxidants. So um you know, there, there are various different uh, positive effects that can be seen with that. So it can help reduce the blood sugar um, and, and even have some positive effects in cholesterol. And some of the people who have been on these products, again, the other thing is having that CGM on board, you can mm -hmm. see, you know, when you take the product, um, you know, the, the blood sugar reduction um, versus, you know, not having it on board um, can, can, was was shown um, up to like forty two percent in the uh, stabilized product, so yeah, I mean that that in people in the beginning before they're adding on metformin or if they're hesitant to add on metformin, um, it's it's nice to have other options. Mm. Um, but when those options are exhausted and you've done the exercise, you've done the lifestyle, and things aren't getting better, then you you do need to move on. I mean, you need to move on. Um, and, and there are plenty of drugs out there, as we discussed earlier in the program, um, that just do phenomenal jobs in um, reducing blood sugar and getting you to where you need to be. And now we have plenty of other, these plenty of other options that can actually help with weight loss. Because for so many years, the products we had for diabetes, um, you know, the sulfonylureas, for example, that class was making people gain weight. And like most diabetics have obesity. So yeah. we finally have things that can help to, you know, reduce weight, which is one of the most important things we need to do in people who have diabetes who are obese. Yeah, you know, uh, it's really interesting. Um, the, the some of the products that you recommended, it's really interesting, your clinical approach, right? Because you're, you're kind of taking this approach where it's like, um, some of this would be like stopping the sweet taste in the mouth. So you don't eat as much. Resist, some of yeah. some of the some of the products that you're talking about here are decreasing um, the amount of sugar that we might absorb. Others are actually dealing with the underlying biochemistry of what's going on uh, in inside the body, which is a really interesting sort of clinical way to do that. I'm just pointing that out um, for yeah. everybody, kind of the way that you're looking at this. It's really useful. And I also do love, you know, sort of that you bring up some of the, the diabetes drugs, you know, for example, yeah. some of the drugs you mentioned, right? One of the reasons they were working, they were increasing you know, sort of um, the ability for the body to clear glucose by mm -hmm. increasing uh, adipocytes and making, you know, making it so, so these people are getting fatter, their blood sugars might be under control, but that's not necessarily the approach that we want. And now we have sort of new treatments. So let's round this out now with this going back to kind of how we started this discussion. So it sounds like from listening to you clinically, metformin, um, is sort of your beginning place to start or are you, um, you know, are you, you know, how, how are you managing that? Is it metformin seeing if that can get things under control and then adding things on? And one thing I do want to say here, Dr. Kellis, because I think it's important and, you know, jump in here and comment on this if you want to. One of the things that I've seen happen lately, especially since the pandemic, is that a lot of people who are, you know, sort of health advocates like you and I and pay very close attention to this, they, there does seem to be this belief that natural medicine and diet and exercise always solve the problem or always 
is curative. And of course, I certainly thought that for a long time in my early days until you see enough clients that you go, they are doing everything right. And they and it's not curative and it's not making a difference. And you cannot have these people walking around with blood sugars this high and expecting to have uh, uh, any quality of life or live a long life. And so it does it is true from my clinical perspective that sometimes the diet and the exercise uh, doesn't work even when people seem to be doing it. And we do have to have this next level here. And so any thoughts on that? And I would just love to you know, just learn from your clinical experience about how you're thinking about these drugs and also anyone who's not a clinician or coach understanding how they can talk to their physicians about the different classes of drugs, the new ones, and which ones we should be thinking about or asking about. Yeah. So um, basically it's the metformin usually is that first go-to once you're like on treatment. And I will say like, yes, you know, natural can help to a certain degree, but then, you know, some people get upset and they get frustrated with themselves and they feel like they failed, even though they're doing everything right. And the lifestyle, the exercise, but, you know, at the end of the day, as I said earlier, you know, genes play a role, age plays a role, insulin resistance continues, and, and the, you shouldn't be blaming yourself for, like, moving to, to prediabetes or diabetes because you've done everything right, um, but, you know, once you've sort of used the supplement, used, used the, um, you know, lifestyle and, and exercise, Metformin is typically my first. And then I start looking at the risk factors. So if a patient has had a history of heart heart attacks um, or stroke, then you want to consider the SGLT2 inhibitors because of their really great data on um, cardiovascular risk reduction. And what are the so, common names of those? Just so people um, know. So Farsiga, Jardians, and Volcana, um, those would be... Um, you know, I know pharma's out there like with commercials and stuff. So I'm sure yeah. maybe that's how they would be hearing them. Um, and then the, and then also the GLP ones, you know, the uh, loraglutide, which is Victoza uh, has also been shown to uh, reduce cardiovascular risk and their weekly GLP ones as well, Ozempic, Trulicity, to name a few. Um, and it also comes in oral form. So those um, are great add-ons for weight loss and that potential for cardiovascular risk reduction. So um, the weight loss is is um, pretty significant um, in in that group in the GLP ones. And now there's there actually there are studies out there looking at GLP one with GIP. Um, so that is another um, you know medication that'll be out, up and running that'll he- uh, help you know together to um, improve blood sugar, as well as um, contribute to, to the weight loss and the A1C reduction. And part of the reason that they're contributing to the weight loss, uh, my understanding is, you know, for those who don't understand these incretins, they're they're basically hunger uh, hormones. Yeah. So, they, so they, they satiate, you feel full. And it's funny because sometimes you do tell the patient when you start them on it, but sometimes you're like, I just feel full. Like, am I supposed to be feeling full? I'm like, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that it does yeah. for you. It like mm-hmm. sends a signal to your brain, makes you feel full. So you eat less. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then a lot of know, what the benefit would be driven is that the drug, then calories are reduced. Insulin lets go down. Insulin resistance starts to reverse. All this exactly. stuff starts to be uh, sort of moving uh, backwards. And so I, I love that you're bringing this up because we do have new and better and more appropriate uh, drugs now for this condition. Uh, one of the things I want to ask, final thing I want to ask and see, I know you have something to add, so add it, but yeah. then what about insulin and when, when, when are we putting people on insulin? The one thing I did want to say was that, you know, because some of these newer drugs have the cardiovascular risk and the weight loss reduction and all these really great things, which is why I, I do end up adding these drugs onto the regimen when needed. Um, you know, again, back to the patient, a lot of people, especially as they age and they're in that Medicare population, these drugs can be very, very costly. So you have to look at, you know, can they afford it? I mean, if it's in the hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars, obviously, you know, it's it's going to limit their ability to A, buy it and B, take it. So that's when you start to consider, you know, other options that might be, you know, a little bit more cost effective, but not necessarily the most optimal choice. And mm. that's a conversation you obviously need to have with your physician. Um, yeah, and, and one thing I'll add there, clinically yeah. speaking, I mean, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I can kind of tell that this is how you do it. It's kind of how I've always done it. 
you know, like if someone let's, let's, you know, if someone has high blood pressure, let's say that's, that's a risk factor. So you want to lower that blood pressure with drugs and then you start working on the life. It doesn't mean that you're not work, still working on the lifestyle stuff. And many people, um, not everyone, I wouldn't even say most, but many people uh, do master those lifestyle habits over time and they can be taken off of these drugs, not most, but many. And so I think any clinician is still working on that lifestyle stuff while reducing the immediate risk. Yeah. I think it's really important to let the patient know because sometimes they do feel like it's a life sentence when you, you know, getting into your question about insulin. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. What do you mean you're starting me on insulin? Like it's this life sentence, but you know, sometimes, for example, if a patient with type 2 diabetes presents in the hospital, um, their body is loaded with glucose, freaking out, and no oral drug is going to touch them. They need insulin to make the body happy and cool it down and, you know, get it working again. And so, you know, you can explain there are certain patients who can have that insulin initially, you know, and then we can add on those orals and transition them off the insulin. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going to be off of it. Obviously, if you have type one, you're going to be on insulin. But if you have type two diabetes, in some situations, when you start insulin, you don't necessarily you're not necessarily committed to it if it's in a situation like I described before. So, you know, that that is one of the things that you need to make clear. I love love this hierarchy. This hierarchy you you presented to us clinically. I mean, it, it really is a, a beautiful sort of way to look at it, right? It's sort of like, listen, depending on where you are and the type of patient you are, we're always going to be working on diet and exercise type of stuff, and exactly. then we're going to look at natural stuff. That's sort of like the next step up, and we're moving into low force pharmaceuticals and stuff like that, and then we're potentially moving into higher force pharmaceuticals based on the individual, and and that should, in my mind, always be the way it is. It's just good medicine, but we can't always just take someone from a very sick, you know, type two diabetic who has, you know, all this blood sugar. Sometimes we have to get them on insulin, lower that, make exactly. changes. And and yes, some people I've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. Some people will do uh, make it all the way back. Many end up in some phase along uh, the way, and it's it's necessary. I'm, I'm so grateful for your uh, educating us here. I want to make sure that. Um, we talk a little bit more about anything else you want to cover. And I do want to make sure people are aware of, because you mentioned sugar break. You're, you're one of the, you're on the medical board with sugar break. Is that correct? And, and so with these, with these sort of natural products, and I think it's an interesting uh, company because it is a group of primarily MDs from what I can see who are working uh, very closely with thousands and thousands and thousands of patients dealing with blood sugar issues and diabetes and coming up with research-based, evidence-based natural products that can make a big difference. And they're using these in the clinic. So any other thing you want to add or any anything you want to talk about uh, with the sugar break uh, products or anything like that, uh, I would love so to. So that's hear. the one thing, you know, um, there's so many drugs out there in pharma for type two diabetes. And it's so nice to have um, a product that is, you know, looking at the science and trying to get information that is science-based. And I, you, you know, as you can see a lot, a lot of the supplements that are in uh, stabilize, reduce and resist um, have been studied in the past. And many of those studies are, you know, coming more and more like in the, in the last, you know, several years or so, they're doing more clinical studies looking at this um, to see the efficacy and the help that it does in, in reducing blood sugar. So it's nice being part of a team that, you know, is, is a natural product that really finally has um, the approach of, of looking at a science-based way um, to, to bring natural product to um, to the public um, to help them um, reach their blood sugar goals. Yeah, love it. I'm going to do a real quick submission and you could just, you could test me on it and to make sure that the takeaways are there for people. But um, here, here's what I've heard uh, you talk about today. Essentially, when we're talking about um, blood sugar management and uh, treatments and reducing, you know, the propensity to get to diabetes, we're talking about First and foremost, making sure you're watching your carbohydrate intake. You mentioned clearly whether you're diabetic or not. This is one of the things that all of us should be doing. And one of the the things that you mentioned there that we talked about is this idea that measuring this, if possible, if you can get a CGM or continuous 
glucose monitor. Yes, lower carbohydrates, but also have a way to monitor certain foods that you might not be aware are causing difficulty um, in your blood sugars. Then understanding the importance of exercise and Dr. Let's sort of educate us on the idea of, you know, walking and weight training, but finding something you love uh, and being able to do that, becoming movers rather than sitters. And then, of course, we have the natural medicine sort of options there. Uh, certainly, um, uh, you have certain products. There are, there are products available. And then the idea of these different types of drugs, uh, especially new and better ones that actually reduce risk and control um, blood sugar. And this is sort of in my mind, the, the full sort of spectrum. You start with diet and lifestyle. You definitely can use natural uh, medicines and then being aware of all sort of the drug-based options. And one thing you said critically, and I think you, you modeled this really well, is finding a clinician, a, a mm-hmm. physician who is willing to work with you as an individual and understand you as an individual and work with you on these different a sort of patterns rather than doing just simple cookie cutter medicine. And by the way, everyone listening to this, this happens whether in conventional medicine or alternative and complementary medicine. Now you have a lot of cookie cutter sort of uh, practices. And I would say a clinician who can understand your unique risks, your physiology, your psychology, your preferences, your practical circumstances, and design a plan around that is going to be um, the best bet. Awesome. So sounds good to you. That's about, that sums it up. Did I miss anything there? It was perfect. 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 Dr. Kellis, I'm so uh, grateful for you coming on, educating uh, us. I always love just catching up with another clinician and learning from you. Thank you so much for your time and for your education and the work that you're doing. We appreciate you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Wonderful.